the study of theology is the study of the word or the idea or the concept or the logic of God himself. Took me four years to read the Bible. I reckon I understand a great deal of it. Wasn't what I expected in some places. So I'm sad that we're not on the same page eschatologically. I wish Sam Storms and I were on the same page. So you believe in these kind of things? Let's just say I want to believe. Well, I know where he was converted. He was converted on the toilet. That, I, I like that one. We're you gonna would. To, you could say he was saying I was in the dumps, whatever. Just, well, which stall what? was he in? First John, second John, no, 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 third no, no, John. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let be careful here. He had bowel problems. He struggled with constipation. The argument among certain psychologists, he finally experienced relief with constipation. And in that moment of relief and deliverance, he suddenly... I wasn't getting that graphic. <laughs> he suddenly, you know, had this breakthrough discovery. And all of his fetid guilt, he released. Welcome to the podcast. This is Theology Unplugged. It's good to see you guys. How you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty well. Clint said he was doing terribly, so I don't know. I changed my mind. I'm not too bad. All right, good. 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 I gain perspective. All is well. Well, we got a new series we are starting, and it is over the Reformation. And uh, Sam, can you tell us why? Uh, you, you're, you're the one who put forward, let's do the Reformation. Yeah. Why? Uh, because the world is doing it. Uh, this year, 2017. It's not a very Christian attitude. Yeah. The world's doing it, so well, let's do you it. Know, it's, it's global. It's a global phenomenon. Uh, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther on the church door at Wittenberg. Although, it's amazing, uh, people are even writing to, uh, this year that maybe Luther didn't do that. Maybe that was kind of an apocryphal story, but I think he did. But uh, 1517 is technically viewed as the launch of the Protestant Reformation. So here we are 500 years in, and um, there are uh, dozens, if, if not hundreds, of books and monographs. There, I've uh, personally seen uh, four new biographies of Luther that have come out uh, this year, and there are probably more. There are conferences scheduled. Uh, uh, the Gospel Coalition Conference is uh, devoted to the theme. Evangelical Theological Society in uh, will be in Rhode Island this year in November is devoted to the heritage of the Reformation. So it just seemed fitting and appropriate that we would consider this um, to think about what was the Reformation. Was it, as some have said, a tragic necessity? Um, and what is the aftermath? We live 500 years in the aftermath of what Luther did. Uh, is it for the better or for the worse? Well, this is the big one out of all the dates, but we just got all kinds of dates. I mean, we had 1611. We had the uh, publishing of the uh, King James <clears throat> right. Bible, the 400-year anniversary on that, not the 500-year. Mm -hmm. But then we've got, um, oh, last year we had the publishing of uh, Erasmus's uh, uh, Greek New Testament. Um, and but just, only a geek like you would know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a Greek geek. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that, that's a big one. Uh, Dan Wallace has brought that up quite a bit. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a big one for him. And then, King uh, Geek. Many dates coming up from here on out because the Reformation yeah. had many hallmarks. Yep. Now, we're not going to talk right now about the Reformation proper. We're going to talk about... What led up to the Reformation? We, we want to talk these podcasts, these next few podcasts, 
about the precursors to the Reformation, why the Reformation happened, why it had to happen, why it was prepared, how it was prepared, and uh, go through, I guess, four or five just different main things that we'd say stand out that most people don't know about Mm -hmm. that uh, I think will help you understand the Reformation whenever uh, whenever you uh, hear about these. So I don't know which one we want to get started on, but uh, I'm sure Sam has notes on which one to get started on. So I've got ideas in my head. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of factors that that contributed to the Reformation. One of the things that we're going to have to answer is, I mean, you look back and you see individuals like John Wycliffe and John Huss and others who um, advocated very much the same theology that Luther did, but their efforts died. They didn't. They didn't uh, create the, and their bodies. Yeah, they, they didn't create the groundswell and the and the revolution that Luther did. And there, there's a very specific reason why. Luther succeeded where they didn't. It wasn't because he was more courageous. I mean, Huss was burned at the stake. Um, and so we have to ask that question. But there are a number of things going on. And we're talking here really about from about 1300 to 1500. So the late medieval period, uh, the Renaissance certainly contributed to a, a mindset that made the Reformation well, more and acceptable. quickly, talking about those people, mm-hmm. I think it's important because for me, whenever I first started studying church history, that was a confusing time because I was like, why for so long, all of a sudden, did this one guy come out? Nobody else had done it before, mm-hmm. but there were people, there were many people beforehand right. that were raising their hand and saying, uh, wait a minute, you know, let, let, me, let me protest against this. Let me speak against this but it wasn't until all these things come into play that mm. that you have not only enough of them but you have the the historical um uh fertilization yeah uh ready okay for I'll, I'll just jump right in with my theory uh it's not mine it's widespread as to why luther succeeded where the others didn't and it, it's traceable to a man named john gutenberg johann gutenberg um, because when Huss and Wycliffe and these others um, began to uh, stand up in protest of what they saw as uh, uh, spiritual abuses in the papacy and uh, the desperate condition of people, nobody outside of their immediate city would have heard anything about it. They wouldn't have known anything about it because there was no way of disseminating the message. Luther comes along, posts his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, and within weeks, there are pamphlets that are spread all across Germany. Luther writes, you know, three or four major significant uh, pamphlets that challenge certain aspects of Roman Catholic theology. And because of the invention of the printing press, um, all throughout Germany, it wasn't just in Wittenberg where Luther lived and mm-hmm. taught, but the message went <coughs> everywhere. And without, that's why it was interesting. I remember when um, we, uh, the year 2000 came about and historians, both secular and religious, were asked to rate the uh, top 100 most significant events in the first 2000 years of, of the modern era. And most of them listed Gutenberg as number one. Newton, Isaac Newton was up there toward the top, but Gutenberg was number one simply because uh, it revolutionized everything. It, it wasn't just a man standing up in a pulpit and preaching a sermon that challenged Catholicism. 
and then everybody went home and nobody outside that building knew anything about it. Yeah. Luther Luther's message was now uh, able to spread and uh, to go into villages and towns and cities all across Germany, eventually throughout Europe, down into Italy. And I think that was the decisive factor. I don't think that Luther preached all that much of a different message from Huss or Wycliffe, but his message was heard in a way that theirs couldn't have been. He went viral, yeah, didn't he? Well, it was it was almost like it was, it was almost like the social media uh, of the 16th century. I mean, you think about the difference in communication in America going from nothing but radio to TV to the internet to yeah. uh, smartphones to Twitter. And uh, it was as rev- even more revolutionary going from basically a no-print culture to the massive distribution of literature that uh, came about as a result of Gutenberg. Um, then, yeah, it, it was more, more so, like, like you said, I think, than our current information age, uh, than the Internet, which the Internet's a huge deal as well. <laughs> but because you do have... <laughs> Not just a no print culture, but just a no information culture. Right. And this is the the ability now for the first time for not just things to be printed. It wasn't just things got printed, but now people had a reason to learn to read. Well, I was thinking of other, uh, you know, factors that go with what you said. The difference between Luther. We know we know Luther agreed with. Uh, those guys, because he was asked if he agreed with them, yeah. by and large, and the, when they, and he said, yeah, pretty much, these guys are, it's kind of an audacious thing to yeah. say. These two well, guys are heretics, one of which we burned. Do you agree with their writings? Uh, yeah, they're, these guys are onto something. Well, yeah, it was interesting. In fact, it was at um, uh, the debate with John Eck. I think it was uh, 1518, 1519, yeah. and um, Eck accused Luther of following John Huss, and Luther kind of balked initially, and then during the break in the debate, he went and Overnight. read uh, some things about Huss, and he came back and said, yes, we are all Hussites. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, think of how bold that is. Yeah. You're, you're, you're calling yourself now after a man who a council condemned and burned. Right. So, but I also think, don't you think that the um, political circumstances are different? Because I, I think that had Huss stayed in Bohemia, he might have. I mean, he did have an influence there. I mean, they 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 uh, lionized him after he was burned, right? The mm-hmm. Bohemians rioted and made him a national hero, and the Moravian Brethren sort of traced back to those guys. But he left. I mean, he had safe conduct letters, right? He left and went to the council, and he yeah, they right said the they said you can come and we'll we'll guarantee <laughs> yeah. your protection. He got there, they burned him. Yeah. Well, you don't have the church doesn't have to keep its word to heretics, right? <laughs> So had he stayed home, stayed put, he may have been more influential. But of course, Luther had all the princes of Germany yeah. to protect him. Yeah, uh, he could easily. He had his friends even willing to kidnap him and hide him in a castle, right, for a while. Yeah, the political scene was very significant because during this period, really from about the middle of the 14th up until the time of Luther in the early 15th or 16th century, um, the states were becoming increasingly independent and not as reliant upon or tied to the church in Rome as they had been. So there was this growing sense of independence, of, of personal autonomy, and um, the, you know, the rulers were certainly not uh, happy about being heavily taxed by Rome. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to send you uh, that, that amount of money any longer. And so there was this uh, 
political, economic, the Renaissance contributed to this sense of a of the uh, significance of the individual as over against the, the the state or the church. All of these things were kind of seeds in the ground that were um, that were created a fertile soil in which Luther could you know could plant his message, so to speak. And not only uh, were states independent, some kings had challenged uh, the church and made it back down. I think about the. Uh, the kings of England and France during the Hundred Years' War, they taxed the church, they taxed the clergy. And then the Pope at the time, <clears throat> I think it was Boniface, tells them, you can't do that. You, you can't tax uh, the church. They needed mo the money. He says, you can't do that. He threatens to excommunicate both of those kings. And if I remember right, they both basically called his bluff. And he didn't have the guts. You know, you can't excommunicate two kings of major countries. And basically, instead of, uh, instead of following through on his threat, he said, well, you know, in extreme national you know, circumstances, I guess you can tax the church. And he backed down. Uh, and then, of course, when, he, when he's challenged, when he, when he faces off later against that same French king, Philip, Philip decides, okay, well, fine. I don't like this pope. So he just has some guys kidnap him and, right, and moves the papacy to, uh, to France. To Avignon. Yeah. And, and puts his own pope there. Of course, not only is this the, the church being weakened in its influence, but it's also scandalous. And you have to think that the people, tabloid-loving kind of people, are, even though they don't have tabloids, they, they have to know that this is kind of a... Uh, these scandals don't make the church look good, let's put it that way, right? They, right. Don't make the, they, don't, they don't continue to sow into the population strong confidence and loyalty yeah. toward the church. Yeah. Well, you know, we can talk... Um, and, and secular historians, they want to focus on political, economic, uh, social uh, causes for the Reformation. But the bottom line is we have to look to a theological explanation yeah. for what yeah. happened. And I think the, the, the most critical issue was the, the increasing um, moral disintegration and theological disintegration of late medieval Catholicism. Because if the, if the Catholic Church had... Uh, had been more robust, more biblical, um, and less <laughs> corrupt uh, in terms of its leadership and practices, it's questionable whether Luther's message would have resonated as much as it did. There was, uh, the late medieval Catholicism was a mess. Let's just, and, and, and saying that as a Protestant, uh, quite honestly, most Roman Catholic historians and theologians acknowledge that. They say, yeah, it was in bad shape. The papacy was corrupt. Um, the theology was um, um, was far less than biblical, to mm -hmm. say the least, and that more than anything else, I think, created the the context in which a Reformation could succeed. And and the Catholics would distinguish here, and they would say, well, the theology uh, had its problems, the the morals had its problems, but the dogma was still intact. You know, we'll we'll pull out this this kind of going thread of dogma and say the dogma has to stay because at this point they can't come in and say, yeah, we were wrong about all this theology uh, that we had established, say, the the sacraments and the mm -hmm. authority of the Pope and uh, the uh, way we have set up the church and the way in which we conduct business uh, as far as uh, how to... Uh, how to administer the sacraments. Mm -hmm. They didn't go back on that, but it had been a growing thing that had started very early on. And, I, you know, one of the things that Protestants need to realize whenever you look at the Catholic Church, 
Um, I, I often tell people you need to distinguish between the Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church right now because what you're usually criticizing is what the Roman Catholic Church became, or came, the Catholic Church became. And it wasn't really until so many of the dogmatizations, so many of the councils in the late Middle Ages, leading up until Trent of mm-hmm. 1545, that you have Roman Catholicism as we know it really established as, uh, as it is today. And so you got to understand that before this, there was just this developmental time as well. And so we find... We, we were still finding our identity in this system. We were still trying to, let's say Luther, whenever he looked back upon it, he wasn't wanting out of this. He wasn't wanting out of the church. He wasn't saying, hey, let's, uh, let's uh, start a new church. He was seeking, hey, we need to reform the current system, the Catholic system. We need to keep the Catholic church. Unfortunately, uh, we got stuck with the name Protestant, you know, which is uh, a forever a protesting name. Right. Uh, and they got to keep Catholic. I would have re- much rather kept the name mm-hmm. Catholic and had them be named something else like, uh, you know, moral corruptors or something. <laughs> well, not only did they not want to reform those key doctrines, you mentioned Trent. I mean, this is the Counter-Reformation response. They double down, don't they? Hmm. On some of those key doctrinal issues, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. They they agree. It seems to me on the corruption stuff, which when I look back at the guys like Wycliffe and, and Huss, and I, I think I'd throw in a few others too, like uh, like Peter Waldo, like the, mm. and and how about Savonarola, yeah. the uh, the Dominican in Florence? They all seem to me when they criticize the the church, and all of them, of course, are saying let's reform the church. None of them are saying let's break off and form something new. But it seems to me that all of them. Are doing sort of a two-pronged protest, and they're and they're really um, they really echo each other when you just read everything they say. One prong of it is the moral problems, right? The the, the clergy, they're lax. They're you know they like they're money. They're fathering too much. children. They um, got all over the place. Sexual scandals, <clears throat> and they they're they got nepotism. They're appointing their some of them are holding two or three bishoprics for the money. They're doing all kinds of stuff. This is totally corrupt because they're in this position of power to be able to do it. That's one big, big problem that they have. And then the other one is the theological one. Because even a guy like Huss says, um, even he says, the papacy, the office of pope, it's practically convenient because we have such a large administrative body to govern, but it's not really biblical. That's kind of... I never knew he said that. You know, originally I would have wouldn't have realized that people that early were saying things that doctrinal, but they were. Uh, yeah. So I think it, yeah. in some ways it's both of those things, don't you think? Um, I mean, I, and I think you said as much that had the church not had all of its moral problems and corruptions, uh, it sort of comes with power, influence, and money almost inevitably. If they hadn't had that stuff going on, and if they hadn't been developing these hardened doctrines over the years then the, the, maybe none of this stuff happens. Well, we often talk about the Protestant Reformation coming down to, or just the distinguishing hallmarks between Protestants and Catholics as being um, the issue of authority and the issue of faith alone. So 
authority and faith alone are the two. We, we got all kinds of other things, all kinds of other hallmarks we can look at, but authority and faith alone. And whenever we look at the issue of authority, we look at what the Roman Catholic Church is today and don't really understand how it became that way and why it became that way. And once again, as I said before, finding our identity within the Catholic structure, finding that that we were Catholics all at this point up until the time of Luther and even a little bit beyond till there was a final break, we, 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 we didn't really understand what was going on underneath our noses in our own church. We thought so many of the things that were being put in place were a good thing. I mean, all the way up into until the time, or starting at the time, say, of the First Ecumenical Council. Now, all of us would agree that the Council of Nicaea, the, the Creed of Nicaea, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking about the uh, nature of God and the, the uh, foundation for the Trinity that were there, and we, we would look at this and we would say, that was a good thing. However, at that point, whenever you had so much controversy going on, so much, so many problems, you had the council coming together and writing an authoritative statement that basically the entire church had lived by. And we were like, that's fine. It's a small statement. We like small statements in Protestantism. We don't like long ones, although we it get... It fits on your web we page get, better with your statement of faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get, we get longer and longer whenever we get into magisterial Protestantism. But um, you have this short statement about the essentials of the faith. But then what happens is you have... Nicaea taking care of a problem where people were saying the wrong things about the nature of Jesus and uh, was he created or not and saying, hey, this council worked real well and uh, it, it settled problems. Why don't we have another council and another council and another council and every, anytime a problem comes out, we'll just kind of append to the old. An ad hoc creed. committee. Yeah. And we'll append to the old creed. It worked the first yeah. time. And as we're looking at it, this is a good thing, you know. It's settling disputes. It is stopping heresy and creating orthodoxy. However, as we move into the later Middle Ages, these problems that are being uh, addressed are by far not problems that we would say, hey, we don't. It, we, this is not in need of a council over you know, about how to administer baptism or how the clergy mm-hmm. is to be paid. You know, I mean, everything uh, you have uh, yeah. becoming part <laughs> of the the um, uh, dogmas of the church uh, on how to do things as well as not only what to believe. And so these these statements became longer and longer and longer and the footnotes in these statements were enormous. I mean, they just went on for days and days. You can never read through them. And if you look at, say, Council of Nicaea, the Statement of Nicaea, the Creed of Nicaea, and it's one par- or three paragraphs compared to, say, the Roman Catholic Catechism today on what you have to believe. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference, you know? And if you can see yourself getting lost somewhere in between, and then suddenly around the later Reformation, you say, wait a minute, we've got not only things that we should believe and and things that are orthodoxy, but now all kinds of stuff that's just being stamped on 
and the church is getting together doing it on its own Mm -hmm. and these things not only have nothing to do with the essence of the gospel but some of them are downright wrong Mm -hmm. like the authority of the papacy right the authority of the pope i mean 11th 12th century this this too many saints to keep up with every day is a holiday yeah (laughs) and the bottom line as you noted is the authority of the pope really became the central and uh, and driving issue because when Luther would challenge uh, certain uh, doctrines, uh, whether it was uh, the, the, the uh, sale of indulgences or um, other practices that he found offensive, the default position of the, of the apologists for the Roman Catholic Church were simply, well, wait a minute, the Pope has spoken. The councils have rendered their decision. And are you saying, Luther, that as an individual, you have the authority or the right to question the accuracy of these uh, of these decisions? And <clears throat> Luther's final appeal was, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the significance, the most significant statement that Luther ever made was when he said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. Th- that was the most defining, revol- truly revolutionary yeah. utterance that ever came from Luther that that sustained and launched the Reformation because Luther was saying, um, I will surrender and enslave my conscience to no individual but solely to the Word of God. That's what sola scriptura ultimately is, that the final determining factor, uh, the arbiter, as it were, that decides all controversy is Scripture. My conscience is bound to the revealed Word of God. It's not bound to the decrees of a council. It's not bound to the decrees of a pope because Luther said to Eck very clearly, or this was, excuse me, this was at Worms when he was standing in front of the emperor Charles and he said, uh, I say that popes and councils have and still do err um, and my conscience is bound to the word of God alone. That was the decisive issue. It wasn't so much sola fide, it wasn't uh, uh, grace, it wasn't the centrality of Christ the final decisive factor was to what do you appeal for your final authority? And it's still the same today. Absolutely. I mean, you talk to people and it doesn't matter. You shouldn't even bother talking mm-hmm. about or arguing about these other things because until you get authority established, right. nobody's going to be able to agree on anything. Because if you're not going to the same source to study from, if you're not going to the same source for authority, who cares? Mm-hmm. Right. We all appeal to an authority right. to render a verdict on truth and error. Mm-hmm. And if we differ on what that authority is, then it's, like you said, it's futile to discuss the little tangential doctrines, you know, well, what about the Immaculate Conception of Mary? What about her bodily assumption? Uh, All these other issues. Well, if you believe that the magisterium of Rome, the Pope in, in tandem with the College of Cardinals, bears final authority, then they have every right to decree that these are dogmas to be believed. Uh, but if you believe that Scripture alone is the final authority, um, then obviously they are ruled out of bounds. So the issue of authority is ultimately the one that is the most decisive, that accounts for why Luther uh, took the stand that he did and was um, you know, ultimately excommunicated. In 1521. And isn't that one reason why lay movements and Bible translators and all that were considered somewhat of a threat? Because it seems like the average European might have just assumed, hopefully, you know, he might have been hopeful and might have just assumed that these church leaders do act and teach in concert with 
the Bible, which, you know, I don't know very well, and I frankly am illiterate if I'm in that time, maybe. Uh, so the, all of these reformers we talked about, one of the things they all had in common is they all wanted to translate. Mm-hmm. Wycliffe does it. Huss wants to do it. Luther does it. Erasmus gets in a little bit of hot water when he starts doing his Greek text, and some people don't like what he's doing. All of those guys sought to translate, and the reason that I think that that was considered threatening it's like, why wouldn't the church like that? What, 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 hey, I, I got a qualified, a qualified scholarly person who wants to do a Bible. Hey, let's support that. Go get them. No, because um, to the degree that, that this becomes known and accessible, and now we're going to have authorities, a square off, squaring off of authorities. So, and and one problem. of the things, too, that <clears throat> Protestants may look at this, and I see them often not realizing, is, yes, Luther established was establishing and the most important part of the reformation is establishing the bible as the ultimate authority um he still i mean it wasn't as if he threw off nicaea it wasn't no if he threw off counseling no yeah let me use the right word let me interrupt ultimate yeah you didn't say only yeah because we all have a multiplicity of authorities a multiplicity of sources to which we appeal but Luther's principle in sola scriptura was the final decisive factor is the word of God, that all other sources are subordinate to the final dictates of scripture itself. And what he said in his statement, I confide in neither popes nor councils alone. Basically saying, I don't only confide yeah. in tradition. Should he have said super scriptura instead? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, our next step is we need to talk about the condition of late medieval Catholicism. What what was the theology? What was the spiritual life of the average uh, Roman Catholic individual in the late medieval period? Uh, what was the nature of it that made Luther's message resonate with their hearts and lead them to uh, join him and uh, foment this uh, this thing we call the Protestant Reformation? Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.